after several weeks, or, or maybe longer, um, after several weeks of taking small bites in our study of the gospel according to John, this morning we're going to take one big bite. It's going to be one of those big bites that um, like, like a teenage young man would take after he's been working all day, say, laying flooring, and then all evening mowing the lawns. I, I'm, I'm speaking hypothetically, I don't know why you're chuckling, but it's going to be a bite where that young man might pick up a hamburger and the Duke's mayonnaise squirts out the sides onto his cheeks and down onto his shirt, um, dripping as we try to talk at the same time. And I'm giving you this hypothetical illustration to tell you that there are going to be some leftovers that we won't get to this morning, some remnants that maybe you can save for later. Um, and I would encourage you to do that, to come back to John chapter 12 and to read and meditate on these things even this week. Uh, I haven't said this in a, in a while, um, but one of the things I want to be sure to say frequently I want, to be, I want to strongly encourage you to be like the Bereans of Acts 17, verse 11, who were, uh, Paul writes more, or Luke writes, more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Go back and examine the scriptures and be sure that what you're hearing is from God's word. Scripture is our highest authority. And so I would encourage you to be people of God's word, as I know you are. So let's jump right in. I'm going to start reading. So we're in John chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 19. But this morning, we're going to look at verses 20 through 50. So John chapter 19, beginning in uh, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it, said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now this is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, 
We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he, had not done, uh, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word, might be, the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would understand these things, that we would hear from you today, that we might live in the light as Jesus is the light, that we might not dwell in darkness any longer. Help us to understand, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon uh, said this. He said, Be much in hearing concerning Jesus. Souls by hundreds come to faith in Jesus under a ministry which sets him forth clearly and constantly. Few remain believing under a preacher whose great subject is Christ crucified. Hear no minister of any other sort. There are such. I've heard of one who found in his pulpit Bible a paper bearing this text, Sir, we would see Jesus. Go to the place of worship to see Jesus. And if you cannot even hear the mention of his name, take yourself off to another place where he is more thought of and therefore more likely to be present. Be much in reading about the Lord Jesus. The books of Scripture are the lilies among which he feedeth. The Bible is the window through which we may look and see our Lord. Read over the story of his sufferings and death with devout attention. And before long, the Lord will cause faith secretly to enter your soul. Spurgeon had a way with words. But he's talking about this one phrase in this section of Scripture. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. This should be what you say to me or any preacher that gets up into this pulpit. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. There are many 
pulpits, and I'd love to do this someday here with this one. There are many pulpits that have plaques inscribed with those words on them, on the inside, so that the preacher would see them every time he would walk up. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. As you look at this statement here in these verses, it's in verse 21, at the end there, verse 21. Um, statement made by some unnamed Greeks. It seems a little out of place, especially with what comes after it and, and really what has come before it. In fact, some have argued that John chapter 12 here from really verse 20 on is kind of a mix and match of paragraphs that almost seem to be edited together haphazardly. But I believe that if you take the statement of the Greeks um, and the response that it evokes in Jesus Christ, if you take this together as a coherent unit, as a work of Scripture, you're going to see the flow of this chapter and even, even the grace and mercy of God. And so as we begin to look at this, we can see already that the roots of the gospel are beginning to spread. So, and so as the whole world has gone after Jesus, as the Pharisees grumble in verse 19, John points out that among those who went up to Jerusalem for the feast were some Greeks. Now, some will argue with this, but I believe it's pretty clear in John's writings that he uses the word world as he does here. When he does so, he doesn't mean every single person in the world. The Pharisees were exaggerating or being hyperbolic, right? Rather, he's talking about people from all over the world, both Jews and Greeks. And it's the presence of these Greeks here in John's narrative that's significant. It's significant that they're there, and it's also, it's also kind of curious that these guys are here. Um, it's curious because it's, it's, it's actually highly unusual to encounter Greeks in Jerusalem like this in any of the Gospels. And John is the only one to mention them in this setting as they ascend the mountain of God for the Passover. Or maybe by now they've already arrived in the city. Um, but even more curious is the fact that these, these Greeks actually make this request and then John never mentions them again. Then they're gone from the scene. They say this one sentence and, and then they're gone. It's, it's as if John believes and is articulating that their arrival and their request, what they, who says it and what they say is significant, but their presence isn't important to the rest of the story. And as we'll see as this unfolds, Jesus recognizes, or maybe we should say that he, he uses the fact that they have come and, and what they say as an indication that his hour has come, that the, that the climax of his incarnation was here, that the, that the cross is, is imminent. As soon as he hears the request, this request of the Greeks, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's how he responds. And then he goes on to explain the mission of the Son. And as he speaks... He speaks of his own glorification and death. And following that, as we, as we walk through the chapter, John inserts an, an explanation of the, of the rejection of Christ by his own people. But because Jesus is a, is a long-suffering and gracious God and Savior, he offers up one final plea for his people to believe in him. This entire passage, 
And the, and the reason I want to preach it all together this morning, it serves as a, as a conclusion to Jesus' entire public ministry, at least before the cross. Beginning in the very next verse after I read here, so chapter 13, verse 1, continuing all the way through the, really the opening verses of chapter 18, it's just Jesus and his disciples, and it's followed by his betrayal and his arrest. So at the end of his public ministry, Jesus is making a final appeal to the lost sheep of Israel and to the world, both Jews and Greeks. This is John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 played out or beginning to play out. John 1, 11 and 12, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. Well, as we work through this chapter, um, even though it's going to be a big bite, um, I want to divide this up into five sections, which will make it a little bit easier to chew, uh, easier to understand. And the point of all of this is the Son, Jesus Himself. He calls Himself, in fact, in here, the Son of Man. So here's an outline, and we'll go back over each point. If you like to take notes, let me just give you these. The first is to see the Son. It's verses 20 to 22. To see the Son. Then we'll look at the glorification of the Son. That's verses 23 to 26. So to see the Son, then the glorification of the Son. Then in 27, all the way through 36, is the mission of the Son. So to see the Son, the glorification of the Son, the mission of the Son. Unbelief in the Son, verses 37 to 43. And then a final, really finally, the, the plea of the Son. So we'll begin with this simple request to see the Son that starts this final plea of Christ to these people. So to see the Son. Let's look again at verses 20, uh, 21 and 22. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. The King James uh, words this request simply as, Sir, we would see Christ, or we would see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. It might seem strange that there were Greeks at the Passover feast, um, especially because John says that they were there specifically to worship. History tells us that there were many Greeks or Gentiles who were drawn to the, drawn to the pageantry and the, they were drawn to the ceremony of the Jewish holidays. Some would go so far as to convert to Judaism, but others would stay at a distance. The New Testament sometimes refers to some of them at least as God-fearers or devout Greeks. Probably they trusted in the promises of God. We can say that pretty definitively. But regardless of who they are, John tells us that they have, they've come there to worship God. But of course, as Gentiles, they're prohibited from entering um, very far into the temple. Essentially, they could only get so close because they were outside of God's covenant people. There was a dividing wall of hostility that separated them from the Jews from, and, and really from God himself. They were, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, they were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
And for some reason, and the scripture doesn't tell us why, for some reason they bring this request to the disciples. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Specifically, they go to Philip. John seems to be explaining here that Philip was either either personally familiar with them, maybe they were from the area around Bethsaida in Galilee, or they may have thought that he might be friendly because he was from that same general area. But regardless, we're not really sure, and at any rate, they, they, they go to Philip and he brings them to Andrew. And we should note that these are the only two names, except for maybe Thomas, um, the only two disciples who have Greek names. So maybe they just recognized the name and it seemed familiar, and I'll go talk to that guy. But for whatever reason, they approach Philip, and Philip brings them to Andrew. And as I said, it is their request that is important. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Near the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus would answer the question of someone who would later go on to be one of his disciples, and he would use the phrase, come and see, come and see. And now, as the Pharisees say, the whole world is coming to see, even the Greeks. You can almost imagine the frustration of his enemies. Back in chapter 11, in the, in the aftermath of his raising of Lazarus from the dead, the Jews held a council and they made plans to put him to death. He had to leave town for a couple of days. The chief priests and the Pharisees put out word in John 11 verse 57 that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And then here he is now in the next chapter, in chapter 12, riding a donkey into the city like a king while the crowds shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And they can't do anything about it. They can't do anything but stand there on the sidelines and grumble to each other because the whole world just seems to love him. Well, they had seen him. And they hated him. Because even now, even the Gentiles are coming to him. And Philip, for his part, must, he must not have known how to respond. Um, after all, Jesus had earlier sent his disciples out, including Philip, with these instructions from Matthew chapter 10. Verses 5 through 7, he says to them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't go to the Gentiles, only go to the lost sheep of the people of Israel. And so you can imagine Philip's confusion and his apprehension, especially when just a few verses after those instructions in Matthew 10, just a few verses later, Jesus had also said this. He said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Hey, Andrew, we have a situation. There are some Greeks here, and they want to see Jesus. Well, Andrew, Andrew's the one who brought the little boy who had five loaves and two fish to Jesus. Andrew, Andrew's the one who had brought Simon Peter, his own brother, 
to Jesus, proclaiming to him, we have found the Messiah. Andrew is going to go down in history as one who fearlessly brought people to Christ. And so Andrew does it again. Let's bring him to Jesus then. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see him face to face and have a conversation with him. To interview him is really what they're saying. We wish to know Jesus. They're not asking for Jesus to be pointed out in a crowd. Can you show me which one is Jesus? He's, he's the one on the donkey. He's the one they're all shouting to. We wish to see Jesus. They wanted, they wanted a sit down. They wanted an introduction. They wanted him to answer their questions. They want to begin a dialogue and a, and a relationship. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. They want to be made friends with Jesus. And, and whether you understand this or not, um, this is why we're going through the book of John. This is why I preach. This is why you're here, that you would see Jesus. And it is him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Because as Paul says, it pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. And so we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And that's what Jesus himself is doing here in this next section. He is proclaiming the glorification of the Son. The glorification of the Son, verses 23 uh, through 26. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is really an explanation of what he's been talking about all along, of his glorification. At the very moment that the Jews are, are uh, the Jewish authorities at least, are, are grumbling and, and plotting against him, Gentiles begin to clamor for his attention. Yet up until this very moment, his hour, as he puts it here, up until this very moment, this was in the future. I think my battery might be going to die. This is exactly what he has said to his own mother back at the wedding at Cana. The very first sign that Jesus performed, turning water into wine, he said, my hour has not yet come. That's what he had said to her. My hour has not yet come. And yet now he hears this request by these Greeks and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Of course, this is his cross. But his hour of glorification is bigger than just simply the cross. It's also his resurrection. It's also his ascension to his throne at the right hand of the Father where he waits until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's why he calls himself the Son of Man here. We've talked about this before a couple of times, but this is from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel prophesies this. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying that the time has come for him to, to go to the Ancient of Days, to, to be presented to the, God the Father, to be presented before him and, and given dominion and glory and a kingdom. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is where we find the irony in the gospel as well. The hour for the glorification of the Son of Man begins at the cross. It begins at His place of of suffering. It begins at His place of humiliation. It begins at His place of shame. That's what He's talking about with this illustration in verse 24. The grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies is Christ. And the fruit, the fruit that it bears is the church. It's the saints. The church will not come into existence without the death of Christ. But verses 25 and 26 there, it's not just simply the church. He's saying it's actually discipleship. Disciples. It's disciples who make up the church. It's disciples who are the assembly of the saints. Jesus is explaining there in those verses the the true nature of the church. He's explaining a a worldly life versus an eternal uh, life, which he defines using the terms as serving, servant, follow. In Jesus' terms, a, a, a true disciple, according to verse 26 there, is one who is with Christ. And ironically, where Christ goes, which is a place called Golgotha, only John follows. Look look at verse 26 again. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Where he goes first is the cross. And it's only John who follows him. And even then, it's at a distance and hesitantly. But Jesus, in his mercy, he will send on the morning, on Easter morning, he will send Mary Magdalene for the others. Go and tell my people and Peter to meet me. The Father will honor them by removing their condemnation. And granting instead eternal life, forgiveness. He will establish them as his apostles. Beginning in verse 27, Jesus explains his mission and he does so with a little help from his father. So this is the mission of the son. Um, We'll go through this in little bits here. Before Jesus' disciples, the church can follow him or serve as he has just said. He must first go to the cross, and he doesn't do this lightly. He says that his soul is troubled, and so he cries out to God in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Later, within a a couple of days, we will find him essentially praying the same prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We are like him in our prayer lives, I hope. We don't just pray once and then move on, especially in some, something like this, something stressful. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's pretty much the same prayer, different words. That second question mark there in verse 27 kind of throws us off. It's not really there in the Greek. Uh, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That question mark, he's probably crying that out. And then he answers, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. At, At this moment, right here in verse 27, at this moment with his troubled soul, our Savior is tempted. I believe our Savior is tempted to love his life and not lose it. But instead of giving in to temptation and and sinning, he calls out to God, Father, glorify your name. It's for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He is calling on the Father who is in sovereign control. He is calling on the Father to fulfill his good purposes, to enact, to inaugurate the the promised new covenant in blood. He's expressing his, his righteous obedience even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the Father gives a simple response for the sake of the people. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The entire ministry of Jesus has given glory to God. We've seen it specifically when he has spoken at his baptism. And the Father was glorified and gave glory to the Son. We saw it at the transfiguration. We could see it when the angels proclaimed when he was born. The entire ministry of Jesus has given glory to God and it's not over yet. Christ will be raised and seated. He will crush the head of the serpent. He will open up the way of salvation. He will tear down that dividing wall of hostility. In fact, while the, while the crowds think that, that uh, the thunder is clapping and it sounds like somebody talking, while the crowds think that an angel is talking to him, He explains how the cross will actually bring God's God glory in verse 31. Now, uh, this voice came for your sake, not mine. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This looks like two things, the judgment of God and the defeat of Satan. But Satan will be defeated, his head will be crushed, he will be cast out as the first step of judgment along with his minions. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says that at the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. There are battles yet to come. But the cross is the decisive battle in which Jesus achieves victory over Satan and his forces. The cross is the, is the ultimate work of God, where the, where the ruler of this world is cast out, he is exorcised and, and replaced by a, by a new ruler, a rightful, righteous king who, who is one like, a, one like a son of man, as Daniel said. And then he says in verse 32, he says this, And I 
when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. All people without distinction, Jews and Gentiles. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. You will, he says. You will when he is lifted up. When he is lifted up from the grave. When he is lifted up in the ascension. When he is lifted up as king. But first, he must be lifted up on the cross. He's already said this back in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus, Jesus Christ being, being lifted up on the cross brings God glory. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says, For it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And John has to explain to them the significance because this crowd just does not understand what he's talking about. Verses 33 and 34, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They hear his words, and evidently they know that he's talking about the cross, or at least dying. But they don't understand what he's really saying. In fact, they, they pick up on the fact that he has called himself the Son of Man. And he has just said, When I, I am lifted up. He's even emphasizing that it's him. When I, I am lifted up. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? They're starting to turn on him already. They're starting to turn on him already. The crowds that have just, just a little bit earlier, just in the previous section, has cried out, Hosanna. Hosanna. How can you say that? How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? They're saying this. Look at how they're arguing. They're saying the Scriptures say something different than you're saying. God promised King David in, in, in 2 Samuel, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And the Son of Man's kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed, according to Daniel. What kind of Christ is this, they're saying? A crucified Messiah? For the crowd, a crucified Messiah is nonsense. It's incoherent. And, and look, they're trying to say it's even unbiblical. The scandal of the cross is meaningless to them. And the idea that the Christ must be, must be lifted up, that he must suffer, it puts an end to their welcome of him as the Messiah of the Jews. This is it for the crowd. In fact, the next time that we will see a crowd in John's gospel, they will be shouting, give us Barabbas. Crucify him. Yet once again, Jesus is long-suffering. And picking up on a theme that no doubt they've heard before, he offers one more gospel presentation. Verse 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. 
The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Of course, this harkens back to John's introduction in the very first chapter. When he said, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus here in these verses, is, he's gently, meekly pleading with them. The darkness is descending upon the land. There will come a time, not many days from this actually, there will come a time when from about the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there will be a literal darkness over the whole land. The darkness is going to soon overtake them. And Jesus is pleading with them. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Most of them won't. Most of them will not believe in him. John explains why as he explains the unbelief in the Son in this next section. The unbelief in the Son. Pick it up in the middle of verse 36 there. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Jesus had just told them that he would only be with them for, for just a little longer. And now, here, for at least a moment, it's almost like he illustrates this by hiding. He, he conceals himself from them somehow. John doesn't tell us how, or for how long, for that matter. John takes this break to explain the lack of belief of the people of Israel by quoting from the prophet Isaiah, actually in chapter 53, verse 1, there in verse 38. And you can see how this clearly fits into the passage. The, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is another reiteration of the truth. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They're not believing. God has always intended for these events to take place. Romans chapter 9 verses 22 and 23 explain why. Paul writes this. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Did you catch that? What if the purpose of all of this is in order to make known the riches of his glory to vessels of mercy? If you're a Christian, you are a vessel of mercy. What if God has done all of this in order to make known the riches of his glory to you and me? Therefore, they could not believe, verse 39 says. Faith is intimately connected with the work of God. They could not believe because he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. 
in order to make known the riches of his glory to you and me, vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And the key to understanding this is really verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, even, uh, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is the difference between mere belief, believing in Jesus, and repentance and belief. They would not confess it. They would not confess Christ. Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." They might say privately that they believed in Jesus, but, but for fear of man, they would never say this publicly. They would never admit this. And so Christ offers them one more plea. I, I want to go down one quick rabbit trail, though. Their fear of man, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They wouldn't confess it. Um, It's very nearly the same thing as saying, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want to be a part of his church. It's very nearly the same thing as saying, I believe in Jesus, but I'm too embarrassed to be baptized, to publicly confess him. It's very nearly the same thing. Christ offers them one more plea. Look at the the plea of the Son. This is his final plea to them here in verse 44. Jesus cries out. He passionately pleads with them and says, Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself, uh, given me a commandment. What to say, what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. It's just like our God, uh, the God that we love and worship. It is just like him to offer a a warning of of imminent, dire consequences, a warning of judgment, and to yet again step in one more time with grace and mercy. It's as if Jesus is saying, this is it for you people. This is it. This is the final it. Not only for this crowd, but for us reading this. This is it, he says. This is his final plea. Now, I know that we're not doing this section, these verses of Scripture, justice. Maybe we will come back to it at some point another day. But in this final plea, Jesus proclaims that he is the 
light of the world. He proclaims that he is the only begotten son sent by the Father. That he was not sent to judge and condemn, but to forgive and save, because those who reject the gospel stand condemned already. Instead, he comes to proclaim that the message of the gospel of the Father and the Son is eternal life for all who would repent, turn from their sin, and trust and believe in him. This is his final plea for them, which, of course, he has given us 2,000 years to chew on, to debate, to think about, to wonder if we will really believe this. And one kind of concluding thought for you to keep chewing on uh, or to save for later, however you want to look at it. This is from our old friend, J.C. Ryle. Forever let us make much of Christ in all our religion. We can never trust him too much, follow him too closely, or commune with him too unreservedly. He has all power in heaven and earth. He is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. None can pluck us out of the hand of him who is one with the Father. He can make our way to heaven bright and plain and cheerful, like the morning sun cheering the traveler. Looking unto him, we shall find light in our understandings. See light on the path of life we have to travel. Feel light in our hearts and find the days of darkness, which will come sometimes stripped of half of their gloom. Only let us abide in him. Let us look to him with a single eye. There is a mine of meaning in his words from Matthew 6.22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. As he said, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me shall not remain in darkness. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. May this be our heart's biggest desire to see Christ, to trust in Christ, to not dwell in the darkness, but to dwell in his light. Let's pray. Father, the prayer of the Greeks is our prayer. We wish to see Jesus. For today we see of him in your word. We see the words that he said. We hear them. We think about them. We hide them in our heart that we might not sin against you. We meditate on them. We trust in them. Knowing that there will come a time soon when we will see Jesus. Now we see through a through a glass darkly. But soon we will see him face to face. And so, Father, we thank you this morning for your long-suffering, for your patience toward us, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you this morning for the light that has given life to men, to us. And we cling to this promise, this desire. We wish to see Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.